Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 to verse 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32. But if you look in your notes, there are a set of notes in the bulletin. It includes the points, the main points and the main goal, even though I did change a few words here or there because I had to turn this in earlier than I'm done with my sermon, but at least um, it'll give you generally the right direction here. But we're going to be covering a lot of different passages in Romans today. So, but we'll only re- read Romans 1, 18 to 32. Actually, we'll start in verse 16. We'll go Romans 1, 16 to 32, and then we'll pray. Hear then God's word from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what? He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. And because, um, I'm sorry, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, not o- they not only do them, but they even applaud others Who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us all. Father, we praise you for your word. It's a heavy word, it's a powerful word. Indeed, it is your power unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so, Father, we pray that you would work powerfully in us to cause us to repent from sins and believe in your word. And we pray that that faith would work itself out in action, that we might be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We ask, God, now that you would empower us. We are weak apart from you. Indeed, we are sinful and hard-hearted and unable to live out what you call us to live out apart from your grace. 
So soften hard hearts, raise the dead, enlighten dark minds, and give us fresh resolve in our hearts and in our feet to walk according to your ways for the glory of your great name and the good of the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you might have heard in the news a few weeks ago a man named John Chow who um, has passed away. Uh, When John Chow was in high school, he learned about the North Sentinel Island through the Joshua Project, an evangelical organization. Are you guys familiar with the Joshua Project? We talk about it. It it talks about unreached ethnic people groups. It talks about missions. It gives updates on the greatest needs in the world. So John Chow um, learned about the North Sentinel Island through the Joshua Project. And so he spent most of the next decade from high school preparing to carry the gospel to, to that island. He attended a private Christian high school in Washington State, and then from there he went to a Christian university in Oklahoma. John Chow was 26 years old, as a, a 26 years old this year, when he was killed just outside, just a month ago, um, just last month, in North Sentinel, on North Sentinel, Sentinel Island, 700 miles off the coast of mainland India. That's been 10 years in coming from high school where he got the burden for this people group. And last month, 10 years later, after hearing about this group and having a passion for the glory of God among the unreached people groups of the world, he was killed by them right off the shore as he exited his canoe. I'm not even sure if he got off his canoe, but right there on the shore of the island, he was um, killed by the arrows of the North Sentinel Island people group. Now, North Sentinel is a home to an indigenous population of between 50 and 100 hunter-gatherers. Not a lot of people on a small island. The Indian government maintains their isolation in order to preserve their culture and protect them from lethal microbes that outsiders might introduce. It's illegal to visit this island, and the country's Navy pilots, our Navy patrols the surrounding seas to prevent visitors from landing. Yet John Chow found a way to convince some people to get him close enough, and then he could drop his canoe close enough there and then canoe the rest of the way to the island against the law of the land to try to reach these people with the gospel. He didn't even get a word in, or maybe he got a few words in before he was killed. He even learned the language or tried to learn the language before getting there and was killed. So my question to you is, was John Chow's life a waste? Did he waste his life? I mean, he didn't get to share the gospel with them. Is that a wasted life? We believe in this church, in our statement of faith, we have a statement on evangelism and missions. It says, it's the duty and privilege of every follower of Christ and every church of the Lord Jesus Christ to endeavor to make disciples of all nations. Every ethnic people group, all 16,000 of them. When we're born again in Christ, it says here, God's... um, It says the new birth of man's spirit by God's Holy Spirit means the birth of love for others. So if you've been born again, not only have you been given new life, you've been given a new love, a new love for others, Christian and non-Christian, a heavenly love indeed for them. And so it says at the end of our statement here, it is the duty of every child of God to seek to constantly, to seek constantly to win the lost to Christ by by verbal witness undergirded by a Christian lifestyle and by other methods in harmony with the gospel of Christ. 
so he was doing his duty, and he was doing his privilege. Now, some of us, where are we in light of missions today and evangelism? We may doubt, some of you here might doubt that missions is really necessary. Perhaps some of you think, you know what, if they never hear about the gospel, then God's going to take care of them. God understands their situation. If they never hear about the gospel, they'll be okay. So let's just worry about our own place. So maybe some of us doubt whether missions is really necessary. If that were the case, that they're okay because God understands their situation, so we don't need to bring the gospel to them, then we should never bring the gospel to them because if we bring the gospel to them, then they could start to be condemned, right? Why bring it to them? If they're, if they're okay without hearing the gospel, why mess it up by sending missionaries to bring the gospel to them? But some of us, I think most of us in this room, know that missions is necessary, right? Most of us, we know that missions is necessary. So then I ask this question. I ask this of myself. If we know it is necessary, why is there so little compassion that drives us the way it drove John Chow or the way it drove Jesus, as Ross preached last Sunday, how the compassion of Jesus, um, how, how Jesus wept. Jesus felt compassion. His heart broke because he saw people like sheep without a shepherd. Why doesn't that compassion drive us if we know that missions is necessary? Maybe a bigger question is, and a scary question is, will we be the Christians that are cold and indifferent to missions and to the nations? Or will, be, or will we be the Christians who are consumed by a passion and compassion for the nations? What kind of Christians will we be here at Bethany Baptist Church? The main goal, and stated here in your notes, is, and I changed it a little bit, Here's my main goal of the sermon. Internalize the eternity of the nations. Internalize the eternity of the nations so that your life is sacrificed for the nations. Okay? Internalize the eternity of the nations. Their eternal need. Put it, you know, get it deep in your heart as we meditate on Romans so that your life is sacrificed for the glory of God among the nations. The goal is that you would all be, that we would all be living sacrifices, consumed by a passion for God's gospel among the nations. Now, to internalize this eternal need of the nations, we're going to think through the book of Romans. And we're going to think through the book of Romans in five steps. And you have all five steps listed here. Why do we need missions? Why is missions necessary? This might be review for many of you, but it's good to review biblical theological truth so that we get it deeper into us. Because it's not just about knowing it here, it's about internalizing it here so that it moves out in our lives, in our, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we mobilize and strategize in this church. Some of you know our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is all going to missions. Our goal this year is $3,000. And so why, why give money to... To, to missions. One small church of 150 people, I, I think I sent this to you guys a few days ago in a, on the email, their goal is $90,000 every year for their, for their missions offering. 
which is just crazy, a small church of 150 people. And they've been meeting it the last few years, which is amazing as they sacrificially live for the nations. How do we get consumed? All right, so five, five steps of reasoning for missions. So why missions? Number one, I'm going to change it from what it says here, because the unaware are condemned. Because the unaware are condemned. You might have heard this question before. Have you ever heard the question? Um, R.C. Sproul asks it this way, and I never forgot his answer when I saw it. He says, um, they ask the question, you know, what happens to the innocent, the innocent indigenous native who never hears the gospel? What happens to them when they die? The innocent indigenous native when they hear the gospel, or when they never hear the gospel. They live, they die. Do they go to hell or heaven? How many of you say hell? Raise your hand. How many of you say heaven? Raise your hand. Just me? All right, just me. Heaven. The answer is heaven. Now, here's what R.C. Sproul said, though. Um, When you ask the question, there is no innocent indigenous native. There's no such thing as an innocent indigenous native. If they were innocent, they'd go to heaven. They'd be sinless, right? The problem is there is no innocent indigenous native. Just because they never heard the gospel doesn't make them innocent. It doesn't make them sinless. It doesn't make them perfectly righteous. In fact, according to Romans 1 here, we find out that they are indeed sinful and condemned. Let's look at the passage. How are they condemned if they never heard? Well, Paul takes us up in Romans 1 and 2. And so point one is really going to go to chapter 2, verse 16. Okay, but let's, look at, let's think about the, the unaware who are condemned. First, there are, the unaware are condemned because they, never, or because they rebelled against God and his created order. That's chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. They rebel against God and his created order. I read it to you earlier. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Why does God's power need to save sinners? Because, chapter 1, verse 18, because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. So people are condemned. Why? Why is God's wrath, God's judgment on people in verse 18? Because by their unrighteousness, what do they do with the truth in verse 18? What do they do? They what? What does it say? They what? What do they do with the truth? Somebody say it out loud. They suppress the truth, okay? Why? Why do they suppress the truth? Why? Because what, has, what can be known about God, verse 20, is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So has God shown them enough about who he is that they are um, unrighteous, that they are accountable? Has God shown them enough that they are accountable to God for what, what he's shown them? Yes or no? Yes. So here's a sticking point with non-Christians. Well, they never had the Bible. True, they never had the Bible. It's not talking about the Bible. It's talking about God's revelation in creation. But God has shown them enough so that they are accountable to be condemned for their sin. Now, if you say, well, no, that's not true. They should be innocent. They shouldn't be accountable. You might say that, and that's okay for you to say that in terms of if that's your belief. But you're saying that God hasn't shown it to them. But if you're a Christian who believes the word, God has shown it to them. It says here that God's shown it to them, right? Does God fail in showing them enough information? No, God doesn't, God doesn't fail. Look at verse 20. What has God shown? For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are what? Without what? Without excuse. God has shown them enough information 
enough revelation about who he is, his invisible attributes, and his eternal power, his divine nature from the creation of the world, that they are without excuse. People in nature, they see things more powerful than them, and yet they might worship a tree. But that doesn't make sense because the tree dies and you can chop the tree down. Why would you worship something that you can chop down yourself? Something more powerful than a tree must be there. Well, the lightning that strikes the tree. So they'll worship nature or they'll worship the clouds or they might worship animals. I've been reading about Hindus this week and, and, and how um, most of them revere cows. Yet we are, humans are more powerful than cows. It doesn't make sense in some ways to, to worship things that you're more powerful than. God has revealed that there's something more powerful than humans. And yet humans don't worship this eternal, invisible Infinite, infinitely powerful person, this creator God. Let's move on. In verses 21 through 23, not only do they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they exchange what they know about God, they exchange him for idol, idols. Verse 21, for though they knew God, so do they know God or not? Did they know God, yes or no? Yes, right, they knew God. If they say, I'm an atheist, I don't know God. Um, you might not believe, if I, if I was talking to an atheist, an atheist might not believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. And I don't believe in atheists either. Because it says here that they knew who? They knew God. They know him. An atheist knows God. Everyone knows God. It's not an issue of whether they do or not. It's an issue of whether they're suppressing the truth and exchanging him for, some, for, for an idol or not. But every person on the globe knows God. All right, so we're moving on here in verse 21. They didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for immortal, uh, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. I mentioned that. So they start worshiping animals and other things that they're more powerful than. So verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. And we know that we Christians are not immune from sinning like this, right? I mean, even our brother Ben led us in a prayer of confession, and he prayed asking God to forgive us for worshiping created things rather than the creator. That happens to Christians as well. But the point is that it is sinful, and it is without excuse. God deserves all the glory all the time in all of our lives, and all of our thoughts, and all of our actions every minute, every day. And yet, humans have exchanged God for idols. And so what does God do in verse 24? Therefore God does what? He delivered them over in their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. If you read verses 26 through 27, it talks about homosexuality here, disgraceful passions, women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and then men with men also committing shameless acts and receiving the appropriate penalty for their error. That's what sexual impurity is. Sexual immorality is sexual um, activity outside of the marriage bed. And when I say marriage, I mean between one man and one woman. So sexual immorality includes adultery, heterosexual adultery, uh, pornography, lust, pleasuring yourself. Um, it includes um, fornication, uh, um, sexual intercourse before marriage, we have, uh, we're still in the process here of praying that we could restore one of our own church members from, from, um, and, re and repenting from that sin. Um, it also includes homosexuality, as you see, you see here, even bestiality, among other things. 
And so the point here is that when you get rid of God and you exchange God for a lie, God hands you over to your sins. And he hands over whole cultures to their sin, including our culture, our American culture today. Handing it over to their sinful... You don't want God? Fine. Go to your own degraded passions as a a society, as a culture. And so that's what's going on here. And if you look at verses 28 through 30... One, look at, look at this culture. I mean, think about the magazine rack. I, I mean, I know what, the way we shop today, maybe people don't go to um, the grocery stores as much, but if you go to the grocery store and you see all these magazines on the magazine rack, imagine Alistair Begg says this. What if you took out all of these things listed in 28 through 31? Just imagine taking all this out of the magazines, okay, and the news. Um, because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, unworthy, unloving, unmerciful. What if you took all that out of all the magazines? What do you have left? Well, you got no magazines. You got a lot of blank pages. You got crossword puzzles, right? That's all you got left. Because this is the stuff that sells, right? This is what our culture is built on. This is what we as sinners giving God up. This is what we feed off of. And look at verse 32. This is interesting. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know justice. They not only do them, but here it is, they even what? Applaud others who practice them. They applaud others who practice them. We're, I don't know who I was talking to this week, but we were talking about someone who was pro-life personally, but pro-choice politically. We're talking about how that doesn't make sense. I mean, so yeah, I don't do it, but I, give, I applaud those who do it. I approve of those who do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not personally, I don't think homosexuality is right personally, but I think that it's right for others to, to be themselves. You hear that today under the sinful, distorted teaching which isn't wrong in and of itself. It's just wrong how they interpret it. I just want that person to be happy, which is, which is what love is. That is love. You should want people to be happy. It's just, we, we're, we're not talking about short-term happiness. If you really love someone, you want them to be eternally happy, right? You want them to be fully happy. So if my kid wants to um, indulge in their Halloween candies right before their favorite meal for dinner, um, and, and I say no, they might cry and say, well, you don't want me to be happy. No, you're about to have your favorite meal and your favorite dessert after, and if you eat all this candy, you're not gonna have it. So I'm actually for your happiness. I actually want your bigger, better happiness. So yes, I'm all for wanting people to be happy, but not how every individual defines happiness. Let's be happy according to the truth of God's word because God is, like Ben prayed again, the greatest gift. God is the source of all happiness and joy. So yes, I want all people to be happy, but our happiness is ultimately, finally, and even um, permanently in God himself, in the goodness of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, so if they never hear about the gospel, they see God in creation, and therefore they are condemned for their sin. They are without excuse. But let's move on to chapter two here, because not only are you rebelling against God in creation, you're also rebelling against God in terms of of conscience. Sorry, before I get there, let me say one more thing about homosexuality just because it's a hot topic in our day. Um, two things that let me say about it. Number one, 
Christians can wrestle with, and some Christians do wrestle with, same-sex attractional desires, even some in our church. And brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of that. We need to be continuing to love them and encourage them, just like we're encouraging all, each, all of us to fight against our distorted desires. Even as a, as a pastor who's heterosexual, I can have heterosexual desires that are sinful and distorted. And so I need members of the church to help me to fight against those. And so just be aware that that does happen. There are distorted desires. We all have distorted desires. Okay, that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is that um, it's, not, it's, it's sinful when people act on those desires. Okay, now action can be being with people or, or other types of activity of even indulging in terms of imagination and lust. But um, we, we just need to know that we are here to love everyone and care for everyone and help everyone because we're all sinners recovering. Aren't we all recovering sinners? Right? This is a hospital of sick sinners needing God's grace every single Sunday and every single day of our lives. So all sinners are welcome here. Every sinner is welcome here. And we, will, we, we say what other churches say, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. God's grace will help you to, to move out of those things as you seek to follow Christ. Okay, let's move on. So um, they rebel against creation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 People, the innocent or the indigenous person who never hears the gospel, they not only rebel against God in creation, they rebel against God in their conscience. Look at verses one through three. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn who? Yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think anyone of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Look at verses 12 through 16 here. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. That's everyone who doesn't have the Old Testament, law covenant of Moses, you perish without the law. And all who sin under the law covenant will be judged by the law covenant. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, so here's the people who never have the Bible, when they do what the law demands, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, when they do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. There's the key word, the conscience. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So how else do people know that God exists? Through their conscience. Even in these indigenous places, like where John Chow went to this island, there are parents there who teach their kids, do not lie. Or they might say, it's okay to lie to other people when it's good, but don't lie to me. And they know that it doesn't matter. Whatever moral standards anyone has in their culture, they have broken them themselves, right? Nobody's what? Nobody's perfect, even in these indigenous groups. And because they have consciences with moral standards, when they break their own moral standards, they are guilty before God because God's law is written where? On their heart. They have moral standards. Even if they don't have all of the Bible's moral standards, they might think homosexuality is okay or they might think that um, being proud and, and boastful is okay. They might think that gossiping is okay. But they have some standards somewhere and when they break those standards, they violate their conscience and they reveal that they are rebelling against God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And so we have 
Hindi speakers in Uganda. I sent the church an email. There's Hindi speakers in Uganda. Uganda's been on my heart lately. We had a, a pastor from Uganda visit our church a few months ago. So I looked up unreached people groups in Uganda. And there's the Hindi speakers, and they have 0% Christianity. 0%. So some have less than 2%. They're considered unreached. They have 0%. And I was reading about them, and I sent an email for you guys to have a little bit of information about them, that they are in, they're Hindus, they're in the case system, so like, it depends on your class. Most of the ones who travel outside of India are upper class. So if you're lower class, they won't even listen to you. You have to be in their upper echelon of society for them, for them to even listen to you. But here they are with no Christian in their language. So they've never heard the gospel before. They live, they die. They live, they have children, they die. Their children grow up, they have children, they die. They grow up and have children, they die. And it goes on and on, generation after generation. They keep dying without the gospel. Are they without excuse? Yes or no? Are they without excuse? Wait, that's a double negative, right? Do they have an excuse? No, they don't have an excuse. Because God has revealed himself in creation and conscience. Therefore, Christians need to go tell them the gospel. That's their only hope. So brothers and sisters, understand their plight. Non-Christian, understand that you're, you're, you are in a sinful and condemned state before God, even before you read your Bible. We need to internalize the eternity of the nations so that we live our lives sacrificing them for the nations. The second reason here is because the, not only are the unaware condemned, the aware are condemned. So this is in chapter 2, verses 17, 17 and 24. I'm going to Skip over this because we're just kind of doing an overview of Romans. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 24, the Jews have the Bible. The Jews have the Bible. Now, Paul's saying, hey, Jews, you have the Bible. These guys don't have it. They just have creation and conscience. But you have the Bible. Have you kept the Bible? Have you kept it perfectly? You who taught people to keep the Ten Commandments, have you kept the Ten Commandments? And the answer is what? No. And because you haven't, guess what? You're also guilty before God. And so Paul kind of climaxes this in Romans 3. Verses 9 through 20, where he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned us away. All alike have become worthless. This is chapter 3, verse 12. There is none who does good, not even one. Or as Romans 3, 23 says it, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So point number two, the aware are condemned. Why, why, why do we need missions? Because those who are unaware of the Bible and unaware of Jesus are damned. Those who are unaware of the Old Testament, they're damned. Point number two, why do we need missions? Because those who are aware of the Bible, those who are aware of Jesus, those who are aware of the Old Testament, guess what? They too are sinners, and therefore they are damned to hell. And so we need to internalize this. If you grow up in this church, children... Just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't mean you're a Christian. We can know the Bible and still be damned. You can be a member of Bethany Baptist Church and still be damned. You can profess to be a Christian and still be damned. Knowing the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. We are sinners who have not obeyed the Bible perfectly. So the second reason why we need missions is because the aware are damned as well. They are condemned. The third reason why we need missions, go to chapter 3 now. This is what um, some call the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, Romans 3, 21 and 26. Turn to Romans 3, 21 and 26. We're going to go to 31 here, though. But here's the most important paragraph. Verse 21, but now apart from the law covenant, apart from Moses, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. 
the righteousness of God. So if I'm going to be righteous, I'm unrighteous. I'm damned for my unrighteousness. If I'm going to get the righteousness of God, it says the righteousness of God is through what? Verse 22, through what? Faith in who? Jesus Christ. Not just faith in anything. Don't be, don't be a person of faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus the Messiah. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus the Messiah to all who believe since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace. They are justified freely by his grace. So in verse 22, we learn that if you're gonna be righteous, if you're you're gonna survive the judgment and not be damned for your sins, you need God's righteousness. And it comes through faith in who? Jesus Christ. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, we learn that they are justified. Justified means declared righteous, that they are accepted by God as righteous. They are justified and declared righteous freely by what? By God's what? Grace through the redemption that is in Jesus. So so salvation or your righteousness comes through Jesus and it comes by grace. What is grace? Grace is a gift to the ill-deserving. It is something given not to the undeserving. Undeserving is neutral. You haven't done anything to earn it. But the ill-deserving, you actually deserve the opposite. Eternal life given to those who deserve eternal death. Eternal joy for those who deserve eternal misery. That's grace. You don't deserve it. You deserve the opposite. And yet by God's grace, through the redemption that's in Jesus, we are justified. Now, how does this happen? Look at verses 25 and 26 here. What kind of grace are we talking about here? God presented Jesus as a what? And as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, that's justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me show you how this works briefly. What does it mean to be the atoning sacrifice? When you get a sacrifice and you kill the sacrifice, the sacrifice atones for your sins. What do I mean by atones for your sins? Atoning means he makes a covering for your sins. He covers it over. He takes the punishment in your place. So back in the Old Testament, you would slit the throat of of a lamb and you would pour out its blood, and you would see the lamb hemorrhaging as life is literally flowing out of the lamb. And as you see the lamb dying, and the priest was putting his hand over the lamb's head, confessing your sins, you realize that you are the one who deserves to have his, his throat slit. You deserve death for your sins. And yet the, the lamb dies in your place as a sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. He takes the judgment you deserve. Well, now, God is saying here in Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul is saying that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, that he dies on the cross and bears the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins. Jesus bears it in himself. And so we sing about Christmas and the cross when we sing in Christ alone, and it says, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love, That's Christmas, right? Helpless babe, Jesus born. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, what's the next line? The wrath of God was what? Was satisfied. 
For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Christ satisfied God's wrath. He atoned for sins. He covered and absorbed the wrath and judgment of God for sinners so that all the damned, whether they were aware or unaware, all those who are damned for their sins would be covered by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus dying for sinners. And God did this to show his righteousness because it is not right to let a rapist go free without punishment for his rape. It is not right for a liar to go free without punishment for his lying. It is not right for a murderer to go free without, without paying for his murdering. It's not right for someone to abuse someone and use their power to oppress a woman and take advantage of her to not pay for it. And yet, King David did all those things, didn't he? You know who I'm talking about, King David in the Old Testament? He lied, he abused his power, he basically oppressed a woman, and maybe, we don't know whether she was willing or not, but either way, he certainly abused his power to sleep with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then he ended up conspiring to kill Uriah. And where is he right now? In heaven, singing God's praises, the murderer, liar, oppressor. In heaven, with not an ounce of grief for his sin anymore. Without an ounce of payment for his sin. Is that fair? What if you were Uriah? What if you were Uriah's daughter or son? And that was your dad who got killed. You okay with God doing that? Is God righteous to let a murderer, oppressor, liar go? He did. How is God righteous? That's what the cross is. That's why Paul says here, God presented him to demonstrate God's righteousness. God is saying, I am righteous in letting a murderer go to heaven. I am righteous in letting David go to heaven because I took every one of David's lies, that, that evil murder, that lust and adultery, I poured out my full wrath and judgment. I exhausted my anger and wrath on Jesus on the cross for David's sin. And now I can graciously give righteousness and count David righteous, even though he's unrighteous. Does that make sense? We're sinners who deserve damnation. Not just David, all of us. Christ died and took the judgment so we don't have to. God is not unrighteous. God doesn't just choose favorites and just sweep them into heaven and say, oh, let's pretend this never happened. God never pretends it never happened. He sees all of it and he hates all of it with an infinite hatred. And he will exercise infinite, perfect justice for every single sin that's ever been committed in this world to the exact degree of the crime. And yet he lets sinners go. Praise God, right? He lets sinners like us go. And how does he do it? Look at verse 27. Actually, let's not go there. I'm gonna, I gotta move on here. I could cover it again when we go to chapter 10. So let's go to the next point. He does it by faith alone. I'll just say he does it by faith alone, not by works. That's in chapter 3, verses 27 to 30. But we could cover that in chapter 10. Go to chapter 10. 10, verse 9. And I didn't realize this, but this is in the song we just sang. So thank you. Um, thank you. And guys, thank you for, for learning new songs. I know we sang two new songs today. That could be a lot for a church. But um, yeah, in, in the song, um, I believe, this I believe. Look at uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. 
You know, you know these verses. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. And that's what we're saying here. We believe in you. We believe you rose again. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you hear us singing that? That's this. That we believe in Christ. We believe he rose again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the what? From the dead that you rose again, you'll be saved. That's what we just, we just sang. Romans 10, 9 through 13. That we believe these things. And if you believe these things in your heart, you are saved. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by, oh, Jesus died, and now I gotta do uh, 50 good things in my life. And when I do those 50 good things and I finally meet that standard, 25 good things, or if I could stay above the 50% goodness curve in humanity, then God will let me in. No, that's not true. You're not saved by your works. It's by God's grace. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. And so the, the, the third reason here, again, just to go back to your notes, the third reason here why we need missions is because God saves ungodly people. He justifies ungodly people. He justifies damned people through Christ, which leads us to our fourth point, why we need missions. Why do we need missions? We need it because faith comes, if you're justified by faith in Jesus, faith comes by hearing the gospel. Look at 1014. So if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But how are you gonna believe and confess with your mouth? How are you gonna call on the name of the Lord to save you? You don't call on God unless you what? Believe. That's what verse 14 says. How then will they call on him they have not believed in? So the only way you're gonna have calling on Jesus for salvation is by believing in Jesus, that he died and rose and that he's Lord. But then Paul asks this question, verse 14, Romans 10, 14. How can they believe without what? Hearing about him. Where does faith come then from? It comes from hearing. And how can they hear about him unless what? Unless there's a preacher. And preacher there doesn't mean don't look at me here, suit, behind a pulpit, I'm a preacher. It's just anyone who preaches the gospel, anyone who shares the gospel. How can they hear without someone gospelizing? How can they hear without a gospelizer? And how can they preach the gospel unless they're what? Verse 15, unless they're sent. And let's go to verse 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So where does faith come from? Faith comes by what? Hearing the gospel. That's my point here for point number four. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. You are not saved apart from Jesus, but you don't Call on Jesus unless you believe in Jesus. And you don't believe in Jesus unless you hear about Jesus. And you don't hear about Jesus unless someone preaches to you about Jesus. And nobody preaches to you about Jesus unless they're sent by someone to preach to you about Jesus. Faith comes by hearing. So if you're in an island, a remote island, without the gospel, you cannot be saved. You're damned. You're stuck. And your grandkids are stuck. And your great-grandkids are stuck. And the generations, three generations from now, are stuck unless they start hearing the gospel. Faith only comes by hearing, which means they need someone there to, to say it to them so that they can hear. Faith comes by hearing. So we need missions because they need to hear. Do you know the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? 
Some of you guys know that story in Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. I think he was a centurion. I don't remember off the top. Was he a centurion? And he, he was praying and he was devout, but he wasn't saved. He was on his way to hell. He didn't know that. He just kept praying to God, even though he didn't know who God was. And then he got a vision. And the vision said, go call the apostle Peter and tell him to come and, and talk to you. So he sends for Peter. So here's Cornelius praying on one side, of, one side of town or some other city. In some other city, there's Peter, and he's praying. He's doing his devotions on the rooftop. Nice place to do your devotions in the morning. He's there meditating on God's word and praying, and then he gets a vision. And basically in the vision, God says, go to Cornelius. There's men waiting downstairs for you. Go to him and, um, and, and go tell him what I tell you to tell him. So he hears a knock on the door. As soon as he's done hearing from God, he goes down there and he says, I'm Peter. Oh yeah, we, uh, our master sent for you. So he says, yep, I'm ready to go. My bag's already packed. And they're saying, your bag's already packed? Well, yeah, God already told me. So God's working in Cornelius, but he's also working in Peter, right? He's not only working in the one who's gonna hear, he's also working on the messenger. And so the messenger comes, he comes to Cornelius and he starts preaching the gospel. This is all in Acts chapter 10. He starts preaching the gospel and what happens? Peter doesn't even finish his sermon. You know, he, he talks about Jesus being the Messiah, dying and rising. And before he says, so repent and believe. He just said, he's just saying that Christ died and rose and the Holy Spirit just interrupts the sermon and enters into all of those who are believing in Christ. Before he even finishes his sermon. And so they get saved. And then Peter baptizes them. But here's the point. Cornelius wasn't saved when he was a good, upstanding citizen. He wasn't saved when he was a religiously devout man. He wasn't even saved when he got a vision from the true God about bringing a messenger over. He wasn't saved until he what? Heard the gospel. Until they hear the gospel, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they won't be saved. They won't be justified in the, well, through Christ's death and resurrection. They need to hear about Christ. They need to hear, which means we need to send and we need to go. Because if we don't, they don't hear. And so we need, the application here is we need to get the word of God to the ears of people so they can hear the message of Christ. Okay? So let's internalize the eternity of the nation so that your life is sacrificed for the nation. So why missions? Because the unaware and the aware are condemned. Why missions? Because God justifies the aware and unaware only through faith in Jesus Christ. And why missions? Because faith in Christ only comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ. And lastly, and this is kind of Romans 10, but we're going to Romans 15 for the end. Lastly, they can't hear without a what? Messenger. And there's no messenger unless they are what? Sent. So the fifth reason why we need missions is because God saved you and mobilized you for missions. You know why you're a Christian? For missions. Why are you saved? For missions. Why did you join this church? For missions. That's why you're here this morning. Because God saved you from all eternity. He chose to save you so that you would be mobilized for missions. And if you are mobilized for missions, you're distorting and you're short-circuiting the purpose for which God saved you. Because people won't hear without preachers being sent, gospelizers, missionaries being sent. Now turn to Romans 15. Look at verse 22. We get a funny phrase here, a strange phrase from Paul in chapter 15. Go to verse 22. Paul says, this is why I've been prevented many times from coming to you guys in Rome, 
But now I no longer have work to do in any of these regions. And I've strongly desired for many years to come to you. This is a strange statement. I no longer have any what? Work to do in any of these regions. So what I did last night was, and I don't know if your Bible is as good as mine, not that my Bible is extra special, but most Bibles, if you go to the back, you have these things called maps. If you have a map, usually the, the last map is Paul's missionary journey. So I started looking around at Paul's three missionary journeys, and you look at the whole world that, the world that he's traveling around, and he says, look, look, PJ, look, church at Rome, see, these ma- see this map in all these places where I've been? This area right here? I have no more work to do. All my gospel work is done. And you're saying, all your gospel work is done? Are you saying, Paul, that everyone in this region is saved? He's not saying that, but he's saying, I have no more work. And you're thinking, Paul, the majority of those you've, all those places you plant churches, the majority of people in all those cities don't even believe in Christ. What do you mean you have no more work? Plant more churches, Paul. Go back to those cities. There's still a few other cities in the area that you haven't reached. Come on, Paul, there's a lot more work to do. And Paul says, nope, I got no more work. I don't know what else to do. I'm bored here. You say, you're bored? What do you mean you're bored? There's all these people who are dying. Well, you got to go back to chapter 19. Go to, I mean, not chapter 19, verse 19. Just go back a few verses. He explains it here in verse 19. By the power of me, by the word, um, and by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's spirit. And then verse 19 says, as a result, I have, here's another funny phrase, I have fully what? Fully proclaimed the gospel to Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to, Ly- to Illyricum. Wow. You have fully proclaimed? Paul, there's a lot of people who haven't heard the gospel. What do you mean you fully proclaimed? Here's what he means, verse 20. Here's why I say fully for all of you who are questioning me, Apostle Paul. My aim as the apostle is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been what? Named. So that I will not build on someone else's foundation. There it is. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Here it is. He's saying, Christ has already been named in all these places. I planted a church there. There are churches in all these regions. Yes, 99.9% of all of them are not saved in that area, but there are churches there now. And so the gospel is going to spread. The seed has been planted, and the gospel is going forth. But I want to go where there's no gospel churches. I want to go to the unreached peoples and unreached places. Unreached peoples in unreached places, unreached cities, unreached regions. So what does he do? That's why he says, so, so here we learn that, that Paul is, is dead set on this. And he says, it, he quotes an Old Testament passage here. He quotes Isaiah 52, 15. Those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. He's just going back into the story of the Bible. He wants all nations to be saved. And that's what he's saying. Let the nations be glad. Have you noticed this? Anyone kind of ask a funny question as you sang this first song? Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples rejoice. What might it say instead of let the peoples rejoice? Let the what? Instead of peoples, let the people rejoice. Right? Why does it say peoples instead of people? Do you know the difference? Peoples are people groups. People is a group of people, a group of persons, right? People. Peoples is a group of, it's a bunch of groups of people, people groups, basically. So when we say let the peoples rejoice, that S is extremely important. Why? Because all the families of the earth are damned in their sins, right? Adam and Eve ate the fruit. 
and we're all damned in our sins. The whole world is cursed, Genesis 3 through 11. But what does God promise in Genesis 12? He says to Abraham, go from your place and I'll bless you and I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you and in your seed or in you, all the families of the earth will be what? All the families, all the peoples, all the ethnic people groups, not just one, not just majority of the ethnic people groups, every single ethnic people group will be blessed. Some among every single ethnic people group will be blessed. Not one will be left out. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God sends Israel. He redeems Israel out of Egypt. Do they succeed in being a priesthood to all nations and getting the gospel out to all nations? Yes or no? No, they don't. And so um, Adam fails. Abraham starts it. Israel fails as a nation. They're kicked out of the land. They're brought back in the land, but they fail to do it. And so Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus succeeds, right? Jesus never sins. He saves people. And he starts by by starting a church, and he unites them to himself. So he gathers God's people around himself, and then he sends now his people out so that all the families of the earth will be blessed because all the families of the earth, apart from Christ, are what? They're not blessed, they are cursed. They're cursed. And so Paul says, my aim is to get not just to, to reach every single person in Bellflower, it's to get every single people group in the world saved, some among all the people groups of the earth. And so, yes, Bethany Baptist Church, keep doing your thing in Bellflower. But my aim is to go to the 6,000 unreached people groups that are still not yet reached. And so what does Paul do with that? Let's go on in Romans 15, look at verse 24. So Paul says, in light of that, verse 24, I have desired to come to you, he says, for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through. I hope to see you, and then he sneaks this little line in, and to be what? Assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Sneaks that in there. I, I, I want to see you guys, and then I want some money from you guys, because I want to be assisted by you on my way to Rome. Okay? Verse 25. So what do you have here? You have Paul. Here's the idea. Paul expects churches to be involved and mobilized in missions, whether by going or by sending and supporting. But everyone has a vested interest, if you're a Christian, in all the families of the earth being saved. So Paul says, I'm going to come visit you guys. You guys are going to, we're going to have a good time together. Then you're going to give me money. I'm going to take that money. I'm not using it for myself to get fat and rich. I'm going to use that money to get to these unreached people groups. And I'm going to share the gospel with them. So that the gospel reaches them and they get saved too. Because God promised they were going to get saved. Right? He told Abraham they would. In Revelation 7, 9 through 11, People from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language are around the throne worshiping God. It's going to happen. I just need some of your assistance to get me there. Because every Christian is involved in this global enterprise. Not just the missionaries, every Christian is. And you see it here in verses 26 through, through 29. I'm not going to read it for you here, but 26 through 29. There's churches helping other churches. They're giving money and they're helping each other so that together they can spread the gospel and support these other churches as they move forward. All Christians and all churches are to cooperate together for the disciple-making mission. So I have a question for you, brothers and sisters. Is there anyone here among you, anyone here today, who is prepared to give up their small ambitions in their life, in the rest of their life, and go to the nations? Anyone here who's prepared, are any of you here prepared to, 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 to sacrifice your life here to go to the nations. God is calling you. 
Then I have a second question. Is anyone here prepared to reorient their lives here in Southeast L.A. to be more fruitful for the nations? Anyone prepared here to realign their budget and realign their prayer times and realign their Sunday night so they can come to Sunday night gathering to, to pray for the nations? Anyone here ready to realign any of that for the sake of the nations, financially and time-wise? God is calling all of us to have a heart for the nations. God is telling you to stop being distracted by the things of this world. The things of this world, these are good tests to strengthen your muscles for missions. But if you don't get strengthened by these tests, you're getting distracted by these tests. It's actually making you weaker for missions. God calls every Christian to be sold out, to be consumed. As you internalize the eternity of the nations, you ought to be consumed, your whole life consumed with a passion and compassion for the unreached nations. So that's my call here, live passionately, urgently, and intentionally for the nations. My call is really Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living what? As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age. Don't be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or uh, don't be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Brothers and sisters, the world has gotten too much into our heads and the nations have gotten out of our heads. It's too much. Too much worldliness. Too much love for the world. Too much love for temporary things. You've gotten caught up. And Christ is calling you to sacrifice your life by going or by sending and supporting. So we need radical changes in our schedules. We need radical changes in our budgets. We need radical changes in our hearts, in our time, in our marriages, in our families, in our singleness, in our parenting, in our growing up in homes. To be living sacrifices poured out And as a church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Here's a question for the church. Will we encourage and celebrate sacrificial wartime living? Or will we legalistic, or will we we, um, have a wartime sacrificial lifestyle? Or will we sit comfortably and get fat on our own wealth and riches and comforts? If we will be a wartime-like church, which I pray we are, I pray we become, if we become more and more focused on missions, here's a second question. Will we be a church that is passionate for missions, sustained by grace and joy? Or will we be, will, or will we be a missions-mobilizing church sustained by legalism and guilt-tripping? I don't want to guilt-trip you to be radical for missions. I don't want to make you feel, I don't want to be legalistically putting on you burdens that God's not putting on you. We want to be grace-driven, right? We want to be happy in God. We want to be biblical, We want to be biblically motivated for missions, not legalistically motivated for missions. I'm not trying to guilt trip you, but I am trying to bring to to bear on your soul the weight of the reality of the eternity of the nations. Do you feel it? Or are our hearts still hardened? One way you can do that as a church is pray on Sunday nights for missions. So again, internalize the eternity of the nations so that your life is sacrificed for the nations. Why? The five reasons here, because the unaware are damned, the aware are damned. Jesus died for sinners so that they can be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
We need missions because faith alone in Christ alone only comes by hearing. So people need to preach. And people only preach when churches and Christians sacrificially give up their lives so that they mobilize for the nations. That's how it happens. That's why we need missions because we need God. And the world needs God. Those are the five reasons. So here's my call to you again, brothers and sisters. Sacrifice your short life, all of it. Sacrifice all of it for the sake of the nations. If you don't, you will, live a, you will live or continue to live or increasingly live a small and shallow life. Your life will be so small and so shallow and so caught up in the things that you're passionate about that are just so meaningless and minimal. And you will fight with your friends and family over things that are so meaningless because you don't live for a big mission. You live for small things that don't count in eternity. That's the problem in a lot of our relationships. If you don't sacrifice your short life, all of it, for the sake of the nations, you will be left out. Because guess what? Is God going to reach the nations? Yes or no? Is he going to do it? Yes or no? Will every tongue, tribe, language, and people be there at the end? They will be there. The only question is, will you be part of it? Will Bethany Baptist Church be part of it or not? It's going to happen. God is inviting us to join the enterprise. How kind of God that he would not let us live meaningless lives. If you don't sacrifice your short life, all of it, you will weaken our church. And we will fight about lesser things in this church. But if you do sacrifice your short life, you will live a big-hearted, big-vision life and live for the most important things. You will not be left out. You will be included. And we will celebrate your efforts in the world to come. And you will strengthen this church and the churches that we have the privilege of influencing by the way you, as a member of this church, sacrifice your short life for the nations. I'll close here with a letter from John Chow. John Chow was, again, that 26-year-old. This is what he wrote right before he went to die. Have you guys seen this? Have you heard of this, his letter? They published it. It's, all, it's on the website. It's on, online everywhere. Brian and Mary, mom and dad, you guys might think I'm crazy in this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whether he has called you too, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of the Sentinelese, that's the people group, the eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9 through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria, which means glory to God. Sacrifice your short life, all of it, for the sake of the nations and God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us away from smaller, trivial things uh, into your great world mission. What a privilege to be a Christian and to be a member of a gospel-preaching church and to be mobilized together with 47,000 other Southern Baptist churches and millions of other gospel churches for your mission. 
we pray that you'd soften our hearts and that you'd use us for your glory. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that we disciple our neighbors because we have future missionaries even here in Southeast LA County who are not Christian right now. Help us reach them, to find them, to love them. We pray that you'd save them, that we might work with them and send and support world missions. In Jesus' name, amen.